the rest of us who are here can turn to Matthew chapter 2. The book of Matthew, first book of the New Testament, chapter 2. We're finishing up kind of our, our four-part Christmas series here on Matthew's one, Matthew chapters 1 and 2 on the story of Jesus' birth. We'll be in Matthew 2, verses 13 through 23 on this Christmas morning. I won't read the whole text now, we'll read it as we go through it, but I will stop and pray and ask the Lord for help. Lord, Father God, thank you for being with us here this Christmas morning with us through your spirit and with us in your son who is God with us. And that's exactly what we celebrate Christmas morning, that you have never been distant. And when we couldn't come to you, you came near to us and sent your Son to live among us, to suffer with us, and to die for us. And we celebrate because he is not dead, but ruling and reigning and alive. And we have life in him. Let us celebrate that truth this morning, whether here, in our worship center, home, or in the other room as the kids gather, we celebrate that you are with us and we praise your name. Amen. So a number of you may have opened your Christmas gifts by now, and you can tell me later whether or not you got what was on your list. Many kids around the world are finding out if they got what is on their Christmas wish list. And some lists are more sensible than others. In recent years, some parents have started taking to social media to to post what their kids have asked for for Christmas. And sometimes the results are pretty humorous. So a few years ago, a mom posted uh, the Christmas list list she received from a 10-year-old girl asking for the following. An iPhone 11. Apple AirPods. A new MacBook Air, a real bunny, clothes, makeup, Gucci slides, a Chanel purse, perfume, essential oils, an American Girl doll car, clothes for the bunny, and $4,000. I actually left some things off the list that was posted. That was an expensive list. Another girl, more simple, asked for a Barbie house like my friend Macy, an iPad, a box of tacos, and a pet pig. One boy recognized he was not very deserving of a gift, but wanted to ask anyway, so he wrote, Dear Santa, I flushed my brother's head in the toilet, but can I have a puppy? <laughs> it's what we love about Christmas, isn't it? The, the, the promise or the hope that our wishes may be fulfilled. And here's where I'm going to Jesus juke this and make this about Jesus. And Christmas is all about hopes and promises fulfilled. In Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, you could say, is a a long story with hope and longing waiting for fulfillment. Unlike a child's wish list, every promise in the Old Testament will be fulfilled. And they all find their fulfillment in Jesus, the Messiah. That is so much of Matthew's aim, and the gospel writer, as he writes 
the Gospel of Matthew, he wants to show how Jesus fulfills all the hopes of the Old Testament. And he constantly, as he writes his narrative, goes back to and says, now see how this was fulfilled. This is to fulfill what the prophet said. And that's what happens in this morning's text. There's three little parts of the story, and three different times will Matthew say this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And what Matthew shows us is that the child Jesus fulfills the promise of Scripture. Even as a child, as he's taken along by his parents and carried along by the appearance of angels, that Jesus fulfills the promise of Scripture. I want to show that to you in three ways in our text this morning, Matthew 2, verses 13 through 23. Jesus, as a child, the child Jesus fulfills the promise of Scripture. We see that first in verses 13 through 15. In verses 13 through 15, we see that he is the child of deliverance. Jesus is the child of deliverance. And just as God delivered the Israelites through Egypt, so God will deliver his own son into and out of Egypt, showing us that Jesus is the true deliverance and salvation of all of God's people. He is the child of deliverance. Verse 13 says this. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. So if you remember where we are in the story, the wise men have just visited Jesus. They've showered their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh upon him. And Herod had told the wise men, Herod the king of Israel, appointed by Rome, Herod the king had told the wise men, go find Jesus and come back here and tell him where he is, that I may worship him. Of course, Herod was lying. Herod didn't want to worship Jesus. He wanted to kill Jesus. Why? Herod was the king of Israel. Jesus was the promised Messiah, the savior of Israel, the true king. Herod's throne was threatened by the birth of the Messiah. And he wanted to eliminate what would threaten his throne. The wise men did not go back to Herod. They left. But Herod is still alive, still a threat to the young Jesus. So the angel tells Joseph, Jesus' adopted father, in a dream, go and flee to Egypt. And notice the way Matthew writes it. Take the child and his mother. The child comes first before the mother because... Even before his own mom, Jesus is preeminent above all humans. Take the child and his mother. Egypt was about 430 miles from Bethlehem. They would travel down the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and the coastal highway. It is thought that maybe those gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh funded their journey. It would have been an expensive trip. But why Egypt? Of all places. Well, Egypt was within the Roman Empire, so they wouldn't have to leave the empire and the safety of the empire, but it was also outside of Herod's jurisdiction. So they were safe from Herod and safe, so to speak, under the Roman Empire. 
But there's another reason why Egypt is chosen as a place of refuge. The story's familiar, isn't it? God's chosen family, under threat of death in Israel, goes to Egypt to find refuge to return later. If you know the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph and his brothers, and the tribes of Israel, and how they sought refuge in Egypt from famine and lived there. God had saved his people once before by having them take refuge in Egypt. And Jesus makes the same journey that Israel did. It's in fulfillment of Hosea 11.1, which says, Out of Egypt I called my son. In the context of Hosea and that prophecy, that book of prophecy, God reminds Hosea of his love for his people, how he had saved Israel once before. And God reminds Hosea how much he loves him. He says, remember, out of Egypt I called my son. I'm able to deliver my people. When they're starving, when they're suffering, when they're in famine, I can save them. And I did save them once before when I sent them to Egypt and out of Egypt I called them. And God reminds Hosea of this, but it's also a prophecy of what is to come, that once again God will save his people through Egypt. And Jesus is the new Israel, the new Exodus. In fact, he's the new Moses. Matthew makes that very clear if you skip down a couple verses. In verse 20, the angel tells Joseph, it's safe to leave Egypt and go back to Israel. We'll get to this in a few moments, but just notice this verse. The angel says to Joseph, rise, Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. That is a direct quotation of what God tells Moses in Exodus 4.19. The Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Matthew is making a direct connection here. Jesus is the new Moses. He's the new Israel. He's the new Exodus. He's the new means of deliverance, the new way that God is saving his people from harm. All throughout the Old Testament, all throughout Scripture, if you want to look at how God saves people and how he is able to deliver his people and God's great love for his people and redeeming them, you go back to the Exodus story. All throughout the Psalms, all throughout the prophets, it is the constant reminder, this is how God loves his people. He saved them through the Exodus. And now as we turn to the New Testament, we see Jesus here as a child. He is walking the same path as Israel, and it's as if God is saying, now, here is how you are delivered. Here is the great evidence of my deliverance of my people. If you want to know how God saves his people, how God loves his people, how God delivers his people, look to Jesus. And this is the Christmas message for us. If you need saving, if you need deliverance, the only place to go is Jesus Christ. He is able to deliver you. This is God's deliverance for you. He is the child of deliverance as he walks the same path that Israel walked in the Exodus. If we know we need salvation, if we know the threat of weakness and frailty and the evil of this world, if we know the threat of our own sins, if we know we need saving, we go to Jesus because he is the child of deliverance. And we rest in this, that God has provided Jesus for our deliverance.
And there is a real threat. And that pops up here in these next few verses in Matthew. And this world is a wicked and evil place. We can even talk about it on Christmas morning. But just as Jesus is the child of deliverance, he is also the child of sorrows. And one of the saddest stories in all of Scripture, the demonic Herod has the boys in Bethlehem killed. We're reminded that the birth of Jesus doesn't come with joy and rejoicing only. It also comes with sorrow and mourning, as he is the child of sorrows. Verse 16, Matthew 2. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Herod ordered the wise men to come back and tell him where the child in Bethlehem was, and they were warned by an angel not to. So they didn't go back to Herod, and Herod was, you know the feeling if you've ever been stood up on a date, waiting for someone to come that never came. It probably didn't take him long to realize what had happened. And as we said last week, Herod was an evil tyrant of a king. He had his own family members put to death if they threatened his throne. We actually have record of an order that he put out that upon his death, every family in the land was to have one of their own family executed so that all the nation would mourn with them. Thankfully, that order was not carried out. Sadly, this order was. It was an order to kill every child who's a male two years or under. Every boy killed who might possibly be the Messiah. He had ascertained from the wise men when this child was born, according to when they saw the star. At this point, Jesus was probably somewhere between six months to a year. We're not sure. But just to be safe, every male in Bethlehem, two years or under, is killed. If you do the math, highest estimates for how many people were in Bethlehem would have been around 1,000 people. So people guess that there may be around 20 or so boys two years or under killed on that day. It's been called the slaughter of the innocents. Some have called it the slaughter of the first martyrs. Catholic and Orthodox churches actually have recognized this date and set aside December 28th or 29th as the Feast of the Innocents. What strikes me is that Herod, of course, himself didn't go around doing this. He sent others to do his bidding for him. Soldiers who were following orders. It's a stark reminder we give our allegiance to one king and one king alone. There's only one king worth following. Everybody else we may submit to, as Romans 13 calls us to, but we do so 
not blindly, and not without submitting to the Lord first. As they carried out the orders of Herod, we can't help but be reminded again of what happened in Egypt. Many, many years ago, while the Israelites were in Egypt, all the young male Hebrews killed, but one was spared. Jesus, again, is the new Moses, the new Israel. Matthew makes another connection. He recalls what the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 31.15. And he quotes Jeremiah 31.15, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Why did Matthew make this connection? Well, Rachel, as you know, is one of the matriarchs of Israel. One of the wives of Jacob, Israel, one of the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel, a kind of a founding mother of the people of God. We also know that Rachel was buried near a place called Ramah in Benjamin, in the tribe of Benjamin, on the way to Bethlehem Ephrathah. And according to Jeremiah 41, Jeremiah, along with the Israelites, were marched from Ramah to Babylon in exile. So these are a couple significant facts about. Ramah, this place that is mentioned here, it was near the burial place of Rachel, and from there the Israelites were exiled into Babylon. One of the saddest days in Israel's history is they were conquered, wiped out, and exiled, and they went from Ramah. So Jeremiah writes about this, and basically says Rachel is weeping in her grave over the slaughter of Israel. She's weeping over her children, crying over her children, how they're exiled and taken away into Babylon, and she cannot be comforted. And some of you have known this kind of grief, this kind of sadness, when you don't want to be comforted. Nobody can comfort you. You don't want somebody to come and say, it'll be okay, because it's not okay. You're in mourning. You've faced great trouble and pain. And that is where the Israelites were in the exile, and it's where the town of Bethlehem was on Christmas morning. Not the exact date, but in the arrival of Jesus, it comes evil and suffering. The slaughter of the innocents might remind us of Revelation 12.4, which speaks of a dragon waiting to devour a child. The book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 4 says, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Revelation 12 looks back to the slaughter of Hebrew boys in Egypt and the slaughter of Jewish boys in Bethlehem and reminds us that Satan is always lurking to destroy the people of God. Men like Herod come and go, but there is always a dragon. Until Jesus comes and puts him away forever, there is a dragon that waits around looking to destroy So we celebrate every Christmas morning under the threat of a dragon that lurks, that wants to reap destruction. So we're not surprised 
when we experience sorrow and pain in this life. And for some, Christmas is an especially painful time. It is a reminder of loved ones lost, a reminder of the sorrows of life. According to one medical journal, cardiac deaths peak between Christmas and New Year's. From the beginning, Christmas is always a mix of hope and sorrow. That's why I like that we celebrate it in December. In the darkest season of the year, that is when a light shines. Jesus is born in the midst of darkness, the context of evil and suffering. Isaiah 53.3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Jesus is acquainted with suffering. He was born in the context of suffering. He died as a man rejected on a cross. He died as sufferer precisely because the world is full of suffering and he came to save us from it. And we as his church will always live in that context of sorrow and pain. The joy of Christmas doesn't deny the reality of suffering. The joy of Christmas celebrates even in the midst of it because we know our Savior is born. Jesus is the child of sorrows. He's the child of deliverance who can save us from our sorrow. And lastly, we see in verses 19 through 23, he's a child of humility. We see how Jesus of Bethlehem became Jesus of Nazareth, how the Savior of the world came to settle in a humble, insignificant, small town, of Nazareth. And Matthew's point here, and the point of the scriptures, is that Jesus is a child of humility. He came from a humble place of humble origin. Look at verse 19 with you. Matthew 2, 19 through 23. It says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Well, eventually, Herod dies. Just like all men who threaten the king, all those who threaten the church, every dragon who wants to steal the life of Christ and his people, all of them die. And just join a long list of the dead who have opposed God and his anointed. So like Pharaoh, he dies. And the angel appears to Joseph and says, Herod is dead, it's safe to go back to Israel. The problem is that Whenever one dies, another emerges. You, know, you cut off one head of the hydra, and another grows back. And that's what happened here with Herod and his son Archelaus. Herod kind of divided up his kingdom after he died, and he gave it to a few of his sons, and Archelaus was reigning over Judea. Archelaus was no better than his father, also a wicked ruler. He once quieted a rebellion in Jerusalem by having 3,000 men put to death. 
He was actually removed by the Romans in 6 AD because he was so despised and incompetent and ineffective as a ruler. He was not unable to keep peace in Judea. So he was removed in 6 AD, but he's in power at this time. And Joseph knows it and doesn't trust going back to Judea. So again, in a dream, an angel helps him. And Joseph goes back to the Galilee, the northern region of Israel, in a town called Nazareth. Well, why Nazareth? Turns out, we read from Luke, that Nazareth was the hometown of Joseph, and possibly Mary as well. So Nazareth is a familiar place. But beyond that, there's no significance to this town whatsoever. The word for stick in Hebrew is netzer. It means branch or stick or shoot. Netzer. And... If you allow a little wordplay, you could call Nazareth Sticktown. Or if to really stretch it, you could say it's the sticks. There is nothing remarkable about Nazareth. So when we hear Jesus of Nazareth, well, Nazareth itself, I mean, Jesus is carrying a lot of the weight there, right? It's not Jesus of Jerusalem, the, the throne. Or it's not Jesus of Nineveh, the great and mighty city. No, it's Jesus of Nazareth. It's kind of like saying Jesus of Wichita. Like, <laughs> brings nothing to mind. So Nathaniel will say, can anything good come from Nazareth? Uh, if you're from the Pacific Northwest like me, it's like saying Jesus of Tacoma. What comes from Tacoma? Nothing. And that's the whole point. He's from a, a humble, small place, living among humble people. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, here's the funny thing. That line there, he would be called a Nazarene, you will find those verses nowhere in the Old Testament. There is no verse in the Old Testament that says he would be called a Nazarene. So what is Matthew doing there? Well, he's not quoting one verse. Even the way he writes this and constructs it, he doesn't say, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, and then quoting. He says, generally, to fulfill what was spoken by prophets. So he's talking not about a verse, but an idea. Matthew is referencing an Old Testament idea, a theme that this child who was going to be born was going to be a humble, rejected by men from a humble place kind of Messiah. He would be of a lowly people. So as Isaiah 53 says, he would be despised and rejected by men. He'd be like a Nazarene, humble and lowly, seemingly insignificant. He won't be a mighty tree, a tall oak that everybody will look at and say, look at this magnificent person. No, he'll be a branch, a stick, a shoot that grows out of a stump. Isaiah 11.1 1 captures it well. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch, a nazar, from his roots shall bear fruit and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. A child of humility, a small branch, will bring triumph to the family tree of God. That is the character of the Messiah. A humble, small, insignificant, 
Savior, who is our Lord and Master. He'll come in humility as a servant and die as a sufferer. It's part of what makes Christmas glorious. We celebrate a king who was born in humility. It's what should mark the character of Christians. As we think about, on this Christmas morning, how should we live in a world full of raging evil? We remember how our Savior was born. A child raised in humility didn't come with loud and thunder and might and power, but in the strength and character of God and humility. It's how God responds to the rage of the world. Think about what happened on Christmas. A dragon rages. Herod the tyrant wants to protect all his power and rule in the midst of the mighty Roman Empire, God sends a child. And he saves the world through small things. It's our encouragement this Christmas season. The child Jesus fulfills the promise of Scripture. The child of humility, the child of sorrows, the child of deliverance the humble king who saves his people from the troubles of this world. There's a poem that captures this spirit. It's titled Refugee. I believe it was read this year at the Royal Carol Service in England by request of the king. It was written in 1957 by Malcolm Gite, and it reads like this. We think of him as safe beneath the steeple, or cozy in a crib beside the font. But he is with a million displaced people on the long road of weariness and want. For even as we sing our final carol, his family is up on that road, fleeing the wrath of someone else's quarrel, glancing behind and shouldering their load. Whilst Herod rages still from his dark tower, Christ clings to Mary, fingers tightly curled. The lambs are slaughtered by the men of power, and death squads spread their curse across the world. But every Herod dies and comes alone to stand before the Lamb upon the throne. All our hope rests on this lamb who would die in humility and then one day stand upon the throne as king over all. And we worship him this Christmas morning. Pray with me. Father, we thank you and praise and rejoice in you this Christmas morning because you have sent your Son in the great power of humility 
service and suffering and righteousness and love. And we praise you because this small child now reigns and rules as King Jesus over all, the risen one, the one who conquered every enemy. And we have our safety and our deliverance and our life in him. So we praise you. Thank you. In the name of your great son, Jesus Christ. Amen.